My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. Last night, the House January Committee's final primetime hearing of the summer was all about 187 minutes. If you're living on this side of the Atlantic, you probably did as little as Donald Trump did during that time and slept through the broadcast. That's why we are so grateful to have the legendary US correspondent Marion McKeown back with us on the podcast at six o'clock in the morning on the Friday afterwards. That's why my voice sounds like this. She watched this stuff so you don't have to. Marion it sounds like it is definitely worthwhile going back to YouTube and re-watching what took place on this occasion. Well, you know what? You, you pipped me there, Jarla, because I was going to say for something good this week, I recommend watching this and a couple of the other hearings as well, because there's nothing better in my jaundiced view, admittedly, but there is nothing better than this on Netflix, on Hulu. It has the build up and the way, as we've said before, week on week, they have put the, the committee has put this case together in the calmest and most rational of ways, only using Republicans, only using former Trump employees, really former. There have been one or two, I think two to three other witnesses. Two of them were election workers in Georgia and one was a capital a security um official at, at the Capitol. And apart from that, everybody else was working for Trump or was a Republican who supported Trump. And um, last night on, on Thursday night where they had what was we all believed it was going to be the final and it's sort of it's like you know in all the thrillers when you think it's over and then the hand the big claw comes back up out of the bath or the lake or whatever and it drags you back in well it's, it's a bit like that because they did announce tonight that well no there are going to be more hearings in September now because they said the amount of stuff that keeps coming up and there's still information coming in. There are still people who are even now who who had been very squirrely, to put it politely, about testifying are now getting a bit of sort of, I wouldn't say Dutch courage, but a bit of colleague courage because of the fact that some of their colleagues have been brave enough to go on the record and, and to put their hand up and say, I, I want to tell you what was happening. So, okay. uh, well, but, let but, me just say yeah. this, that later on in the show, we will look at Steve Bannon's essential surrender at trial oh, yeah. where he offered no defense. And I'll ask Marion, what kind of prison sentence can he expect, if any? We'll also look at the Secret Service's bizarre and possibly criminal deletion 
of evidence, which they claim was a total accident. Sure, I don't know how this thing works. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about that in the second half of the show and a big change to Irishman abroad. That's all coming in the second half of the show, but let's get down to it. They promised a minute-by-minute analysis of how Trump failed to make any effort to tell the rioters to leave the Capitol or to try and help his lawmakers as they were forced to flee the House and the Senate chambers. Is that exactly what we got, Marion? We got that and then we got some as well, some more, because they went right into the following evening. They carried on the unfolding drama and craziness in the White House and on Capitol Hill with some really shocking testimony, I thought. Um, and it, it they, So they brought it right up until the following evening when Trump, fearing that the, he, the 25th Amendment would remove him or he'd be impeached, suddenly decided to make a very grudging speech on the evening of January 7th. They brought us right up to that. Um, And, you know, there were two witnesses this time who were both former Trump employees in pretty senior positions. One was a guy called Matt Matt Pottinger. Now, I'd come across him before years ago. Interesting guy. He used to work for the Wall Street Journal as a correspondent. He was based in China. And then he came back and he basically joined the secret, not not the Secret Service, the Marines um, at 31, when most guys are well past doing the 100 push-ups and, and the, the, you know, running the 50 miles. Not you, Charlotte. You could probably join the Marines right now. In fact, <laughs> yeah, probably I don't think so. to join. <laughs> <laughs> but he, but he went anyway in and he became an intelligence agent. Now, there was always chatter, and I'm saying chatter and nothing to support it, that he was a spy. It said a lot about foreign correspondents who worked for newspapers in places like China. But anyway, he came back in, he became an advisor to Trump. He was a Republican and he became a Trump advisor on China and on national security in general. And he was promoted pretty quickly. Really smart guy, up to becoming the deputy national security advisor. Now, there are a couple of them, but on that day, he was it because Robert O'Brien was traveling. So he was the national security guy who was sitting at the big desk. So he testified, and so did a woman called Sarah Matthews. Now, Sarah Matthews was a deputy press secretary. She and Kaylee McEnany were very, very close. They were very good friends. And she had worked for the campaign previously. And McEnany brought her on board and said, no, we want you working right in the White House. So she was there that afternoon as well. And, you know, their testimony confirmed, I think, what everybody already knew, which was that people were begging Trump, begging him, begging him to do something, to do something. There were people in and out to Mark Meadows, to Trump, um, almost every staff person, lawyers, Pat Cipollone, Eric Hirschman, basically Pat Fiblin, everybody. And I think at one point they showed testimony from Pat Cipollone again, and he said literally every member of staff wanted him to do something. The ones in the senior roles were the ones like I am, I think the, the head of the, the communications director and McEnany were amongst. So the heads of every department were apparently going down to him and saying, this has to stop. We need to put out a statement. We need to put out a statement. And he was refusing to do so. Now back to the 187 minutes, which is the length of a long movie, basically. It's the length of what? Um, a football once match. Once upon a time in America. You know, a football like, anyway, match that a goes to extra movie. time. Yeah. Yeah, like so. It's, uh, but Trump apparently, when he came back, now first of all, what unfolded was that he came back to the White House. Now we know from um, Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, which was corroborated, by the way, 
uh, by an independent, a capital police officer who also overheard talk about it, that there was a ferocious ruckus um, uh, after Trump's mm-hmm. speech because he wanted to go to the Capitol and the Secret Service were saying, no, sir, I'm afraid that's not a good idea. Uh, so anyway, apparently he, he was back in the house and he was photographed in the house. And it was the last photograph taken that day by the official photographer scowling. And But he still had his coat on and it transpired that the, the motorcade was still running outside the door because he was still determined he was going to go to the Capitol. So he stomped around the White House apparently for 45 minutes with his coat still on before oh he eventually took to not the Oval Office and not the side office to the Oval Office, which is where they, they actually do the work, but to the dining room where there was a big telly with which Fox News was on. And he sat in there on his own and wouldn't let anybody basically disturb him or, or come in or out um, while he watched the whole thing unfold. Now, it turns out that the the committee was able to get a fair idea of what he was doing because of other people's phone records. They, I just want to proceed this by saying one of the most astonishing things, and if you want evidence of, you know, that, that there is the whiff of a rat somewhere in the White House uh, from the moment he came back after that photograph was taken, which was, you know, pretty early in the day, between one twenty one, I think, no, 11.06, between 11.06 that morning and 6.54 p.m. that evening, all of Trump's phone records were scrubbed. Now, this is a president who never got off the phone. We noticed that he was phoning people at three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, 10 times a day. Um, this was mm. a guy who was attached to his phone because he never uses texts or emails. He, Like any good mob boss, he only speaks to people directly. There's no record, there's no paper trail. So there isn't a record of a single call that he made or received between those God, is it eight hours? For eight hours, the president of the United States goes dark on the most consequential day in American history, you could argue. Um, there's nothing on the call log. And then between 121, which is when he hightailed it into the, the uh, dining room, and sometime after four o'clock, the White House photographer was instructed, you can take no photographs, which is really not for the president to do because they're there to document, they're there for the archives to document the record. Uh, and again, nothing in the call log, nothing in the diary. But we do know that at 1.39, um, Trump called, guess who, Rudy Giuliani. It was a four-minute call. And literally at 1.49, the police declared a riot. That was when the crowd started. Now, again, I'm I'm putting out these uh, numbers and times because you can argue that there is a lot of circumstantial evidence. So Trump gets on the phone to Giuliani, he has a call with him, and suddenly things ab- about five or 10 minutes later escalate up on Capitol Hill and the police declare this is a full on right. Now they haven't breached the Capitol this stage, but they're doing their damnedest. Uh, so, you know, th- there's always been this talk that Giuliani and Bannon and Roger Stone were the links between Trump, they were the middlemen between Trump and the militias, like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And we do know that they were front and center of orchestrating the riot on Capitol Hill, that there were two different groups. One was the group of, we'll say, harmless Trump supporters who turned up to hear his speech at the Ellipse and, you know, to to voice their beliefs and their protests that the election was stolen, as they are perfectly entitled to do. But there was a parallel operation going on where they were, where another group were getting poised to storm the Capitol using you know, who had brought weapons, who had guns, who had knives, who had sprays, who had, you know, and other knuckle dusters, all kinds of, of um, 
objects that were there that they had brought for one reason, which was to inflict physical damage on, on other people. So anyway, um, so this happens. So after once the police declare a riot, after that, that's a 149, okay? Trump, okay. normally, if the police declare a riot on Capitol Hill, the president will go to the Situation Room. I mean, you would say normally because it's never happened before, but you would imagine that he would yeah. go to the Situation Room. And we know with the, with the George Floyd riots, he was all over it. He had the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Defence Secretary, he had them all in there for peaceful protests outside the White House where no laws were being broken. Um, and uh, Trump never went to the Situation Room. He never phoned the Attorney General. He never phoned the Defence Secretary. He never phoned the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, the Homeland Security or the National Guard. He basically did nothing. But we do know again, because they, they got other phone records, that during that time, in between watching Fox News' account of what was going on the Hill, he kept phoning senators. He phoned Lindsey Graham. He phoned Tommy Tuberville. He phoned Ted Cruz. He phoned a whole six... Um, oh my God, Marsha Blackburn, various other senators uh, to say to them, basically to stiffen their spines, to make sure that they would continue to object and they would continue to thwart the counting of votes by objecting, which would mean that if, if they ever did get around to counting the votes that day, that it wouldn't be able to be completed. So during this time, he was going between, as I said, watching the violence unfold, doing not a single thing to stop it, but calling up Giuliani and the senators and saying, um, come on now, come on, let's, you know, keep your spines. Um, like, mm, we're going I'm to stop down. this. And then at, at two minutes, pa at three minutes past two, he called Giuliani again. Okay. And this call lasted for eight minutes. Now, again, at 2.13 exactly, one of the Proud Boys, one of the leaders, Dominic Pizzola, is shown on video um, charging the door of the Capitol with a police shield, smashing in the doors and smashing in the windows. And that's the point at 2.13 at which the Capitol is breached. So you ask, was there an order? Is there a sort of a connective tissue between the calls of Giuliani and the violence in both instances escalating very quickly and very chaotically. I don't know, it could just be coincidence. But now this is one of the really sad bits that I, and, and shocking bits. Um, at that point, the security guard who, who was working, the security official who was working in the Capitol said that there was sheer panic. And he testified that Secret Service um, guys who were with Mike Pence believed they were going to die. They started calling their families and saying goodbye, telling them they loved them, that they didn't believe they were going to get out alive. It reminded me of the 9-11 type calls that, you know, people were phoning from the plane. And and I just thought, my God. So, and this um, security official said there were lots of personal calls, that there was yelling, there was panic, there was chaos. And this is among the Secret Service. Now, you have to wonder... These Secret Service, and again, we'll get into it later in the show, where suddenly all of the Secret Service texts have gone missing. They must have been, you would imagine, texting or getting in contact with the Secret Service guys who were back in the White House, who were sitting there with their hands swinging, doing nothing, either asking for advice or asking them to talk to Trump or whatever, saying that we believe Mike Pence is going to be killed. They didn't just believe Pence was going to be killed. They believed they were going to be killed along with him. They then spoke about using lethal force to get away from the mob. And, you know, so this was the level that things were at on the Capitol, where people really believed that their lives were in danger. And still, okay, Charlotte, and I, I just can't believe this, and I need to stress mm. it for the gang out there and the listeners, still after that, at 2.24 p.m., Trump sent out another tweet, which, said, which basically put 
the the target on Mike Pence's back. It, you know, mm. it made him yeah, a target we know this saying tweet. that he yeah. didn't have the courage to do. Mm. And it was at that point that the, the, the because it also showed footage of in the middle of all these rioters and mobsters, there was footage of them on their phones checking to see had Trump said anything, what he had said, and showing what he had said, this tweet, and then the chance of hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence, um, escalated. So, you know, at this stage, Trump knew that Pence was in fear of his life. He knew, I'm, I don't know that he knew for sure that the Secret Service down there were also desperately afraid, were calling their families to say goodbye. But nonetheless, a tweet went out after all that had started saying Mike Pence it basically didn't have the courage to act. So I, it was at that point, apparently, that the two witnesses that Mark Pot, uh, um, Matt Pottinger and Sarah Matthews both said, well, Mar Matt Pottinger particularly said, that's it, I'm out of here. I am mm -hmm. not. Um, you know, when he saw that tweet, uh, he testified that he just said, not doing any, I cannot be associated with this. Um, and um, Sarah Matthews testified worryingly that she was back in the press office and an argument started between her and another member of staff whom she didn't name. And they said Trump can't, and the other person said Trump can't condemn the mob or he can't criticise them because then he hands a win to the media. So this is the way they were still thinking. Better to have people killed on Capitol Hill than than, you know, give the the mainstream media or the lamestream media, as they call them, any kind of a, you know, oh, look, Trump had to back down. So anyway, she testified that she gestured at the TV where all the violence and chaos was playing live and said, do you think it looks like we're effing winning? Because I don't. And uh, and she said at that point she decided she was gone. So then they cut into Jared Kushner's testimony. Kevin McCarthy phoned him. Jared Kushner said Kevin McCarthy sounded scared and said to him, begged him to do something and said, isn't there anything you can do? And then Trump himself later spoke to Kevin McCarthy and said, and again, this was the chilling thing. McCarthy said, look, the Capitol's been breached, we're in danger, and these people are, you know, violent and whatever. And Trump said, well, Kevin, I guess they're more upset about the election being stolen than you are. <laughs> so that was yeah. Trump's reaction, basically saying to McCarthy, well, you know, you're, thank God we're not relying on you basically to, over, to overturn the election. So and so that was really what was going on in that um, 187 minutes. And then um, Eric Hirschman, one of Trump's deputy lawyers, White House deputy lawyers, testified that finally at 4.30 when the, the, um, he sent out that message, we love you, you're very special, go home. But the, the the testimony showed that at that point, look, the the crowd at that point, Mike Pence had been on to Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Defence Secretary. And Mark Milley testified, and again, this was shown that Pence was being very direct and very forceful. I mean, I can't even imagine Mike Pence being forceful. What, the, what does that even look like? Yeah. He, I mean, he's got chalk dust in his veins. But anyway, yeah. apparently said, send the National Guard, send the National Guard now. So this is what, and again, remember that because this comes up again later. This is what Millie, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, testified. So the, the National Guard arrived anyway. By the time Trump had made his speech, basically the whole thing had turned. And um, the National Guard were there. There were reinforcements arriving, like huge reinforcements were streaming onto the Capitol and the mob was already dispersing. So it was suggested by the various committee members who spoke that really Trump only went out to speak after the 187 minutes when it was clear already the jig was up. When it was clear that, you know, the mob weren't going to be able to yeah. stop the votes from being counted. Now, uh, maybe that's a cynical viewpoint, but the evidence does support that, that um, claim. 
So anyway, then at 4.45, uh, the acting defense secretary, Chris Miller, had a call with Mitch McConnell and Mitch McConnell said to him, we're not going to let the people stop us from doing our business. We want to go back in. And then there's Chuck Schumer, who, you know, I've always the Democratic um, leader in the, in the Senate, who, who always strikes me as just this little hand wringing sort of ineffectual guy going, well, will it be days before we could go back? And uh, and then they were assured it could be four or five hours. So but at this point, after Trump's um, very short speech, we love you, you're special, now go home and, you know, great patriots, mm-hmm. etc. Um, uh, Eric. Hirschman said, oh, you know, we were all drained at that point. We were just drained. So basically the White House staff, you know, I mean, they should have been on Capitol Hill is what what everyone I'm sure was thinking if they want to know what being drained felt like. They should have been Mike Pence. But um, but anyway, at that point, so um, the, the, the chaos was still going on the Hill. Trump uh, went back into the dining room and then he stayed there for another while. Then Mark Meadows rang um, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, and said, we have to kill the narrative that Pence is making all the decisions. We need to establish that Trump is still in charge. So the only reason that um, Trump's Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, even rang the the, the army, like the, the head of the army, was to say, oh, look, kill that narrative that Pence is, is the one who's, you know, like... Wow. And... So Milley said that he doesn't do political narratives. That's what he testified. Now, he did a big political narrative, we will all remember, in June when he walked with Trump in full military gear across to the St. John's Church in the Mm. middle of the George Floyd protests. But he did, to his credit, apologise for that, said it was a terrible mistake and it would never happen again. So anyway, um, Trump then sent out another tweet at a minute past six, and at that stage, people must have been just banging their heads off walls uh, and saying basically, this is what happens when a sacred landslide victory is unceremoniously and viciously ripped from great patriots. Remember this day forever. Now, that I'm paraphrasing, but all those words were in the tweet. There was a bit more as well. But this is almost like, remember the Alamo. You know, like, remember this as a great day of American bravery. Like, even after it was clear people had been killed, people, 150 cops had been seriously injured, we would end up with, I think, six or seven policemen dying either by suicide or from injuries they sustained on the day. Um, And apparently then at 6.47, he left the dining room and went upstairs. The only thing he said to anyone on the way out was, Pence let me down. There was no, is everyone okay? Is Pence okay? Are the police who've been injured okay? What's happening? That was it. He just said Goodness Pence let me down. That was his only concern. So I think that it was really interesting that they set it out in this way. And like literally, I'm recalling it as it was pretty well set out. And, you know, it's hard to say that, you know, okay, dereliction of duty is a military offence. It's not an offence that, you know, I like, I don't, if I don't file my copy, I'm not going to be charged with dereliction of duty, you know. Mm. So, you know, it's not, it's it's a military, um, but for a president who is actually the commander in chief to do nothing. But what the committee really showed, I thought, was that it wasn't just that Trump, to use his own phrase, choked or was frozen by fear or, you know, overwhelmed by by the job. It was that he had better things to do and his better things to do were to try and keep this um, insurgency going. And when the mob had been dispersed to make sure that the senators weren't going to fold, that his guys in the Senate, because Mitch McConnell had earlier said to all the senators, 
there's going to be no objections because you know how it works that if when the votes are being counted, let's say they say we have, you know, 16, I think it is, electoral um, votes from, you know, for Joe Biden from Georgia. And then if somebody objects in the House, you know, um, which they did for all the swing states, then it's flipped to the Senate. And then if somebody in the Senate seconds that objection, then it has to go to debate, which holds the whole thing up for hours. And if you get enough objections, it's going to take days, really, for for any votes to be counted. I, so Trump was presumably trying to buy time for whatever fantasy he had that he'd be able to push this thing out and out and out. So anyway, um, McConnell said, we're not going to entertain any objections. It, you know, we're going to get this thing done. And he was defied by Josh Hawley. Now, Josh Hawley, you know, it's 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 a funny thing because there hasn't been a lot of laughs in, in these hearings. But one part that you could hear the whole room laughing was there was a point where they sh- Josh Hawley, and again, the gang out there who knows more about this than I do, I'll wager, may remember on January 6th, there was a picture of Josh Hawley walking by the protesters who at that stage are still outside. And he's got a clenched fist in the air, a symbol of solidarity with the rioters, basically. A policeman who was close by testified, a policewoman, I beg your pardon, that this, she was so angry when she saw him do this because he was safe, he was inside, but she said he incited that crowd and he goaded them on. But then there's a fast forward. So they show this photograph of Josh Hawley fist clenched inciting the crowd. Um, and then they show a photograph, uh, no, I beg your pardon, some video footage of Josh Hawley um, when the rioters have breached the Capitol, like when the mob that he incited did what to all intents and purposes they believed he wanted them to do, it shows him scuttling down the corridor, like literally running for his life um, and then running through the Senate corridors and then running down. And I recognize the place so well. There, it's it's this area where there are short stairs and short elevators. And it's the, it's the link, the underground tunnel that takes senators and um, from the uh, Capitol Hill over to the Senate buildings, to the Dirksen and the Hart buildings. So anyway, it showed Hawley having been all, yeah, you know, we're going to do this, then scuttling away from basically his own people. And, you know, as I say, it was the only moment that um, the room laughed. And, you know, for Josh Hawley, the humiliation is because he always portrays himself as this big, brave, macho, testosterone-fueled man. And as well, I have to say, Charlotte, nobody... And Claire McCaskill also said it um, earlier. Nobody, no, I've never seen a senator run in my life. Senators don't run. They glide with this gravitas. Like you think the whole world was resting on their shoulders. Like at all times, they're surrounded by their posse and they walk along and they're, yeah. they, they act yeah, like yeah. royalty. And so to see him scuttling was just, you know, as I say, farcical, but you know, comical, but not funny, I suppose, mm, is, is yeah, all yeah, you can no, say about no, it. it. That is. <laughs> That's very true. Like there, there has been very little humor in it because it's such a serious thing. Yeah. Um, you've done such a great job in setting it all out for us here. I'm so grateful, especially given how tired I am at this moment listening to it. But you've done such a great job at placing what exactly took place, what we heard and how that evidence has been presented, that it just seems now there's no escaping what it's like glacial this process of justice that the hearings will get to what exactly happened even if certain people 
try to prevent that eventually will go round, under, over, or through you like a flowing river towards this thing. But yet still, Marion, we know that there's going to be supporters who will dismiss all of this. Is it becoming harder and harder for them to do that? And I I say this with with Cal Thomas in mind, because I listened to your chat with Cal Thomas this week on climate change. Yeah, I was like, I mean, it's like he disappeared off the reservation. Uh, But I was like, he's, he's probably representative of a lot of people who you know, do facts, not schmacks. Yeah. yeah. And, and against all the evidence, we'll insist that climate change, there's no such thing that, you know, 100 years ago was hot. There was an ice age that was climate change, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I hear this all the time from Republicans. But to be fair to Cal, now that we've brought him up, Cal has never been an election denier. I mean, as far as mm. he was concerned, once Trump, and I think there are, a small-ish percentage of Republicans who I've spoken to, maybe one in, maybe 20, maybe about that, who will say, look, Trump had due process. He was perfectly entitled to challenge the results. He, By God, he challenged the results in 60 different courts. But at the end of the day, the court said, no, sorry, this is the law. There was no fraud. And, you know, and this is, you know, you haven't brought evidence, you haven't supported your case. So they would say, look, he, he was... He had a right to do that, but having mm-hmm. done that, he did not then have a right to thwart, you know, basically the law and the constitution and to go off on, on one himself and decide that if he couldn't win by fair means, he would damn well win by foul. And and that was, you know, so that's their view that that was what he did. But there are still more than not. And I got into a, a discussion, I'd say a heated discussion with a couple of people accidentally recently who still insisted. And again, nicest people to speak to, most friendly, you know, funny, who still insist that the election was stolen and that anybody who doesn't believe it was stolen is a conspiracy theorist and a fake and a liar and, and that they're not patriots, that they want to hand the country over to communists. Now, that that is, and I'm just putting the other side of the coin there because there yeah. are still, you if all the surveys of Republicans right up today show that up to, I think at the moment, it's about 70% of them who say the election was stolen. And uh, quite a big percentage who would support Trump if he were to run again. It's not as high as 70. I think I think that there has been a slight attrition on Trump. Uh, you know, Republicans who do not have the courage of their convictions, who, who have no spines, and I put Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and all of the congressional ones into this category with very few exceptions. Um, will not go against Trump still. They're still scared of him. They don't want him to run. They will tell you off the record, like if you meet them at a reception or you meet them in Washington or anything else, they'll roll their eyeballs and go, oh, Jesus, you know, this is the worst thing. He's the worst nightmare that's ever mm. been ever been visited. But when they're on Fox or whatever, they're out there and they're saying, yes, he has a right to run again. And, you know, we'll see what happens. But if Trump runs again and if he wins the primary, the Republican primary, um, they will all get behind him again. And it's that simple. So no matter what, let's take a beat there, Marion, because there is two things that I'm really excited to talk to you about in the second half of our conversation, specifically the Secret Service and their denial of maliciously deleting anything. I mean, it's it's truly extraordinary what's taking place with the Secret Service. And I can't wait to get into that with you because an awful lot of messages are gone. 
gone gone. And they claim it took place in a routine phone replacement program. I mean, you wouldn't hear it from your parents when you get home and you go, my, my thesis is gone. Are you joking me? I was replacing the laptop. What are you talking about? You wouldn't it is long, accept it's it. It's not my homework at an yeah. adult level. <laughs> oh my God. Well, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Steve Bannon and we're also going to talk about one thing that I really was keen to see, which was the outtakes of Trump's go home, we love you message. <laughs> now, we won't ever get those outtakes if the Secret Service have anything to do with it. But there are outtakes from another speech that we're going to talk about. I will also talk about my moving home. That's right. I'm moving back to Ireland. Well, a little bit. I'm moving my family back <laughs> and I will be a little less of an Irish man abroad from next week onwards. I'll explain all that in the second half of our conversation with Mary McKeown over on patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? This is America. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encouraged espionage against our people. You condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy. 